Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Earlier this week, I was digging through a box in my office looking for something, and I ran across my old case pocket knife. It's a real beauty. When I was a kid, I used to sit on the porch with a pocket knife and a piece of wood, and I'd whittle for hours just enjoying the process of creating something pretty from a branch or an old piece of lumber. My inspiration was a photograph in the Boy Scout Field Guide from 1948, my dad's copy. In the photo, a guy had carved from a single piece of wood a long chain of wooden links, and then hanging on the end was a little cage, like a tiny little phone booth without glass, and it had a ball inside, all carved from a tree branch. I never had anywhere near that kind of skill. The most creative thing I ever did was to carefully carve away the paint on a number two pencil until it was covered by a little checkerboard of paint squares. I started to put the knife in my pocket and then I realized that if I did so, I'd forget about it, I'd start carrying it as part of my habit and then it would be taken away from me when some zealous TSA agent somewhere decided I couldn't go through security with it. So I went back in the drawer and I guess I'll just wait for retirement to carry it again. Now you're probably wondering where I'm going with this story. Well, the answer is Greece, more specifically to a small island sandwiched between the Peloponnesian Peninsula and Crete, west of Turkey, an island called Kythera. And just south of that island is a much smaller island, a little speck of land called Anti-Kythera, which in Greek means, no surprise, opposite from Kythera. And this is where our story takes us, to Anti-Kythera in the very early 20th century. In the early spring of 1900, a sponge diving ship passed through the crystal clear turquoise waters of the Aegean Sea on its way to the abundant fishing grounds of North Africa. But the winds weren't cooperating, so the boat's captain, Dimitrios Kondos, ordered the crew to drop anchor off the coast of Antikythera until the winds decided to blow again. While they waited, the crew put on their canvas dive suits and heavy copper helmets and dropped overboard. What they found stunned them, and soon enough, the rest of the world. Because it wasn't sponges they found, it was a shipwreck with a debris field of some of the richest artifacts ever discovered in Greek waters. Elias Stadiatis was one of the first divers in the water. He dropped to the bottom, 150 feet below the boat. Almost instantly, he signaled frantically to be pulled back up again. And when he surfaced and pulled off his helmet, he was babbling about the corpses of people and horses that covered the bottom. The captain of the ship was puzzled, so he put on his own dive gear, dropped overboard, and soon figured out what was going on. Now, as many of you know, I used to be a commercial scuba diver, and I've spent a lot of time in water much deeper than 150 feet. And one thing I can tell you is that even in the gin-clear water of the Aegean, where Kondos was anchored, at 150 feet, there's not much light. It's dark and gloomy, which is why Stadiatis' claim of corpses can be forgiven. What he had found was indeed a vast collection of people and horses, but they were cast in bronze and carved from marble. He returned to the surface with the arm of a statue that he found lying on the bottom, most likely had a good laugh at Stadiatis' expense, and with the return of the wind, headed for North Africa. But at the end of the fishing season, Kondos and his crew decided to go back to Antikythera, and they pulled several more artifacts from the bottom of the ocean. Now these he reported to the proper authorities in Athens, and very soon the Greek navy was dispatched to protect the site, 
and to provide support for the salvage operation that was mounted shortly thereafter. Now, the Greek Education Ministry quickly took control of the site and under the careful watch of the Navy, they enlisted the help of sponge divers to pull as many artifacts as they could off of the wreck. By the middle of 1901, they brought up bronze statues, marble sculptures, a bronze lyre, and exquisite pieces of glasswork. From the remains of the ship itself, they recovered lead pipes and hull sheathing and baskets full of unidentifiable relics for later study. The collection was transported to the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. About a year later, in May 1902, an archaeologist by the name of Valerio Stais was working the wreck site, and he found a handful of badly corroded chunks of what appeared to be some kind of metal. The chunks were deep green, the telltale verdigris of old bronze. When he looked at the pieces more closely, he could see that one of them had what looked like a gear embedded in its face. More importantly, there were clearly readable inscriptions in the metal, written in ancient Greek. Now this thing, these chunks of bronze, would come to be known as the Antikythera Mechanism, and while it was originally thought to be a clock, it's now known to be the world's first complex analog computer. And by the way, as near as they can tell, it's about 2200 years old. 2200 years old, a computer. Now just think on that for a minute. What's incredible about this find is that for the longest time it got very little attention from, well, anybody. The pieces were put on display in the museum as a pile of curious bronze artifacts, ocean junk really, with no attempt to explain what they were. In fact, 50 years went by before they got any more attention and that was only because one of my personal heroes got involved, Jacques Cousteau. In 1953, Cousteau, who at that point wasn't a superhero yet, he was just a Navy officer with a strong interest in diving, made it a personal project to relocate the site, which had been all but forgotten, and with the blessing of the Greek government, managed to recover about 300 artifacts, including hull planks, ceramic jars, coins, gold jewelry, and even some human remains. The attention that the newly recovered artifacts created also reawoke interest in the mechanism and archaeological scholars began to flock to Athens to study it. So from all that study, here's what we know. The Antikythera mechanism isn't very big. Based on fibers that they recovered from the teeth of some of the gears, it appears to have been housed in a 13 by 7 by 3 and a half inch wooden box. And even though it wasn't very big, it was awfully impressive. For example, a typical wristwatch today, the mechanism in it, has about five to 10 gears in it. You know, we've, we've seen them, we all know how complicated they are. The Antikythera mechanism has 37. Now, given that the machine is a handful of 80 some odd lime-covered metal fragments, you're probably wondering how we know so much about its inner workings. Well, back in 2005 or thereabouts, a team of researchers led by Mike Edmonds and Tony Freeth at Cardiff University used modern X-ray tomography and high-resolution surface scanning to examine the fragments in extreme detail. Among other things, they found that the case was covered with very faint but readable inscriptions, one set of which was a 3,500-word description of the machine. It didn't explain how to use it, it just explained what it did. And based on exhaustive analyses, the Antikythera Mechanism Research Project, led by Edmonds and Freeth, determined that it could follow the movements of the moon and the sun throughout the entire celestial zodiac, could predict lunar and solar eclipses with seriously accurate precision, 
could display the phases of the moon, could show the irregular wobbly orbit of the moon as it swung around the Earth, and could predict the locations of all the known planets at the time. Those were Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn with extraordinary accuracy. It even had little tiny enamel spheres that rotated, showing the phase and position of the planets and the moon at any point in time. So why am I telling you about this other than the fact that it's just way beyond cool? Well, the answer is hubris. Hubris is a really good word. It means arrogance, conceit, haughtiness, pride, self-importance, egotism, superiority, and pomposity, another great word. Well, that pretty much describes us. We think so highly of our modern scientific accomplishments, our fancy digital do-everything watches, our GPSs, our cell phone apps that reveal the magic of the night sky. Yet, here's a machine that did all of that, mechanically, with breathtaking accuracy, and it was built over 2,000 years ago. This, by the way, is the same time frame during which the chariot was invented and Stonehenge was constructed. Now, going back to my pocket knife, I think about the skill required to carve that ball, cage, and chain that I described earlier from a single piece of wood, and I'm impressed. I, I don't know that I'd have the patience or the skill to even try something like that today. But you know what really impresses me? An ancient civilization that understood our planet's relationship with the heavens so clearly that its craftspeople could not only design a machine capable of tracking the sky's infinitesimally small movements, but could actually build that machine. And they understood the complex chemistry of metallurgy. I mean, do you even know what bronze is compared to, say, brass? I didn't. I had to go look it up. And not only did this civilization understand metallurgy, they knew how to work the metal to create fantastically complex things. The largest gear in the Antikythera mechanism is just over five and a half inches across, yet it has 233 tiny, perfectly shaped teeth. Its movement was accurate to one degree of variance over a 500-year period. Now, for comparison purposes, modern radio direction finders used by airplanes and ships and so on are accurate to two degrees. That's half the accuracy of the Antikythera mechanism. And signal drift caused by hot electronic components makes the electronic versions even less accurate. Look, we've been around for a long time, but so has science. What it's done for us as a civilization defies words, which in my mind is all the more reason to pay attention to it and to respect it. I'm Steve Shepard, thinking about whittling something. For the Natural Curiosity Project, thank you so much for listening. The mission of the Natural Curiosity Project is to tell the stories of amazing moments in scientific discovery and accomplishment. If there's a story you'd like to hear, or would like to suggest a story, or just want to chat about the amazing world of science, please send a message to steve at shepherdcom.com. That's steve at s-h-e-p-a-r-d-c-o-m-m dot -M com.